Welcome to The Backlog, a podcast hosted by Adaptivate. I'm Kayla Cartwright, a senior consultant on our Los Angeles team. Adaptivate partners with clients to accelerate outcomes by implementing new transformative ways of working. We are a global firm with offices in the US, Canada, Singapore, Europe, and Australia. Our guest today is Veronica Millen, an advocate and consultant on diversity and inclusion. Veronica has worked for over 25 years as an HR professional, with over 18 years focused primarily on diversity and inclusion, what we will call a DNI, in both corporate and consulting roles at top global and Australian corporations. She is an accredited member of the International Coach Federation and is passionate about making an impact on organizations and individuals alike. Welcome, Veronica. Hi, Kayla. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here today. We're so happy to catch up and talk shop since I know you and I are both passionate uh, advocates for diversity and inclusion and equity. Um, So I'd I'd love, uh, even though I sort of already know, I think our listeners would find it really interesting to hear what drew you to D and I, and again, we, we may use that acronym throughout and it just stands for diversity and inclusion. So now you know that listeners, um, but what drew you to this work? Um, so I think we, we, you know, we've done some work together before on International Women's Day and we're both really passionate about DNI. So I'm really excited to be talking to you. And as we've shared before in our um, personal conversations, and work conversations. Um, we've both had our own journeys, I suppose, and that's what informs our passion for DNI. And I'm sure it's similar for a lot of listeners. So for me personally, um, my mum's South American. I know we've got that um, tie with Uruguay, mm-hmm. and my dad's Dutch. So I grew up in a very multicultural household. Uh, so that you know was a. Um, started my interest in this area. My sister's got black hair and olive skin. I've got fairer skin and uh, fairer hair. And she was treated very differently at school to me. In Australia, often people talk about wogs, sometimes endearingly and sometimes as a bit of a racial slur. And she was often called a wog, which is, you know, a a term that often is used in Australia for people um, of Greek or Italian descent. And often people assumed based on her looks that was her... Um, culture and ethnicity, um, whereas I wasn't. So that sparked my interest initially. Also, my mum's a doctor and my um, dad's an engineer. So um, for the circles that I grew up in, it was unusual to have both parents working um, full time. And so, you know, there was a very unusual division of labour in my house or more even, should I say, distribution of labour in terms of household chores. So that sparked my interest in terms of um, female rights and equal rights. Um, As I said, my mum's a doctor and she would often get envelopes that were addressed to doctor and, and missus and she would always talk to us about the unconscious bias around that. Uh, so, and then my, a few years ago, I broke my ankle. So I wasn't as mobile for a period of time. And that really got me to see what it's like for people with a physical disability, whether it's permanent or um, short term. So on a lot of levels, my journey's informed my passion for D&I, specifically for me around, you know, ethnicity and equal rights um, for in, in gender terms, and also from a disability point of view. And I know you've had an interesting journey too, Kayla. Yes, I, you know, growing up where I did and then working um, in low-income communities, mostly Black and Latino students, I've been 
a, a student of, you know, racial and ethnic uh, disparities and really learning about how to be a good advocate uh, in both nonprofit and public sector. And it's, it's been an interesting journey and one that never ends, like constant learning. Exactly. And I know, <laughs> and I know, you know, we are recording this. It's 23rd of April or 24th in Australia. I'm over in mm-hmm. on the East Coast in the U.S. So it's still still the 23rd mm-hmm. here. And I know for us, yeah. we are in, I think, week six of, of quarantine or lockdown um, during mm-hmm. coronavirus. So I've been thinking a ton mm-hmm. about how mm-hmm. COVID and the pandemic and and many people um, under quarantine globally, how that's impacting mm-hmm. diversity and inclusion in both positive and mm-hmm. negative ways. And I'm curious, what do you think are some of the good things that might be coming out in terms mm-hmm. of like diversity and inclusion from COVID and or coronavirus? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's so topical at the moment, isn't it? So interesting, such an unprecedented time. And I've been reflecting on that too in terms of how the current pandemic and, you know, most of us are in lockdown and isolation and social distancing, how that's impacting DNI. And I think it's impacting in both positive and negative ways. Um, so to answer your question, you know, in terms of the positives that I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot more people working from home. Um, and so obviously, you know, for, for that can be a really good thing for a lot of people, not for everybody, but for a lot of people that can be a positive. You know, roles that previously people have said couldn't be done from home now have been evidence mm. that they can be done from so, you know, a lot more flexibility for workers and um, to be able to work flexibly and work from home. So hopefully that's one of the positives that may um, continue post post the virus. Definitely, definitely. And I know maybe you've seen this. It seems like I see, you know, our reporters on the news reporting from their homes. I see my managers like with their or our team members with their kids and their pets in the background and being much more authentic and vulnerable because we have, you know, we're all going through this together. We're all in our home. We can't really hide it. Uh, so I, <laughs> so just so much more so authenticity true. and vulnerability, which is interesting because often yeah. women are praised. Like people sometimes call that, especially the vulnerability piece, like a women's strength. So it's interesting now to see it yeah. a like be leveraged by both all genders and b come out mm-hmm. and be capitalized upon, even though we've always sort of had it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I agree. So many more. You know, the, the, what I'm hearing um, here in Australia is a lot more males. Um, and even with the international companies I work on and do Zoom calls with and so on, a lot more of the males appreciating the juggling when you're working from home and the kids and the pets in mm-hmm. the background and people being a lot more. So, yeah, it is good to see. And, and hopefully that continues post the pandemic. Yeah, And I know at least, you know, from my perspective, I'm saving a lot of time or um, <laughs> what might be called the time tax in that I accept when I'm on calls, um, video calls with clients externally, our team, you know, we're pretty authentic. So I don't need to get as gussied up as I might. And I'm saving, you know, a lot of time as a woman not having to do that. And that's been a pro. And I know you mentioned last time we talked, we were talking about people who live Mm -hmm. far from their workplaces because of, you know, either cost Mm -hmm. or, you know, family reasons, what have you, like they're saving so much time not having Mm -hmm. to commute. 
and exactly the same commute and often that can be um as you say lifestyle reasons or it can be financial reasons so you know in some in a lot of geographies the places that are further away from the cbd are less expensive so for those in lower socioeconomic groups it could be a real saving in in time but as you say often for females there's that time tax and saving that time on you know the hair and the makeup and so on um is a saving as well. So really interesting times and hopefully some positives um, coming yeah, out Yeah, and it. what about some drawbacks, do you think? Like what are some mm. negative ways that this is impacting mm-hmm. this lockdown and is impacting mm-hmm. issues of inclusion? Mm, good, good point. And as I said, you know, I think there are positives and negatives and, and sadly there are negatives as well as the positives we just talked about. So, you know, I think it's interesting to note initially with the, the negatives that the virus itself discriminates. It can discriminate against those who... Um, have low immunity. Mm. Um, it can discriminate against those with certain types of physical or, or mental um, health issues. Um, so that's interesting. When I um, headed up diversity and, and inclusion for a large international retailer, we had a program that was specifically focused on employing people with a disability. And we did that for ethical reasons. But we also did that for financial reasons in terms of business benefits. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that when someone's abilities are well matched to the position, people with a disability can be more productive and and have lower rates of turnover. Um, But for those people... um, with a disability, the the, um, virus can really um, discriminate. The virus, I suppose, can also discriminate against those on the front line, um, you know, those who are more exposed to the general public, so people who are working in, um, you know, whether it's health or in the supermarkets, those people will be more um, exposed to the virus just by the nature of um, their Uh work. you know, it's interesting, some commentators have talked about the fact that being able to isolate is really um, a luxury. So those in lower socioeconomic groups, you know, and in some countries, being you know being able to isolate or to wash your hands or to sterilize things is a, lo- a luxury that some you know third world countries um, don't have. So that's you know interesting. Um, and look, in Australia, we've really seen an increase in the calls to domestic violence hotlines and oh. to um, mental health. I don't know if you're seeing that in the US as well, but that's obviously really um, concerning and sad. Is that something you've seen? Yeah, over there? we've seen it, and at the, it's interesting. Some states we see it, and then some communities we actually see a dip. And at the same time, we see mm-hmm. a dip in calls to like child hotlines because mm-hmm. you know teachers aren't mm-hmm. necessarily observing and reporting. So. And, and you know, mm-hmm. if, if you can't get away, it's hard to make the call. So, it, but we yes. know it's happening, exactly. and it, it's scary. And yes. everything you're saying about being on the front line, you know, at least in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, disproportionately mm-hmm. uh, Black and Latino populations are in front mm-hmm. line roles. Um, women are also in a majority of front line roles. And everything you're saying is so true. Like the ability, I'm fortunate, you and I are fortunate. Probably many people listening to this are fortunate to be able to even work from home. But I have family members who they're lucky, A, to still have a job. That's a whole other gamut. But they're still going and, you know, get are nervous because they they come home to their families. Um, and, and there's just a variety of, you know, systemic 
historical context mm. in the U.S. and I'm sure each country has their own context that's affecting everything, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's such a good point you raise, you know, and it really does emphasise some of those systemic issues where, the you know, some people are losing their jobs and they can be in certain groups that have historically had, you know, discrimination or less access to, to certain things. So, you know, that is of a concern to me. Um, you know that certain groups are more likely to lose their jobs, and um, and and yeah, the discrimination there, um, the systemic discrimination, I suppose, and, and issues, um, and even for those who do keep their jobs, you know, some people don't want to show their homes. Mm. You know, they have Zoom calls, and they, they for whatever personal reasons, you know, they may not want to to share their personal life. Um, and as you say, sometimes when we see a dip in calls, you know, some areas we've seen increasing calls here in Australia and others we've seen dips. And as you say, it's really concerning because those people are not able to access um, the help they need because they can't get away from the issue at home to make the call secretly. So that that's a concern as well. Um, and I know one lady I came across recently, she um, didn't have... Um, Broadband internet, um, she had what's called dial-up in Australia. I'm not sure if it's the same in the mm-hmm. US, but for personal financial reasons, she, she um, couldn't afford um, that type of internet and she didn't want everyone at work to know. And then it became very evident because the work had assumed that she would have access to to the um, more access to the internet and it kept dropping out. And, you know, for her that was a very... Um, personal thing that she didn't want to share in the workplace so for a lot of us you know working from home is it can be great and for others it's really um not an optimal thing at all so like a lot of things in life there's pros and cons i suppose of of what's happening yeah totally uh that makes me think just you know it's a privilege in general to Mm -hmm. be able to work from home Mm -hmm. when you can but it also privileges those in a certain class or those with certain comforts and um, I also think about um, folks with children at home. Well, I'm sure it's a blessing. I can't even imagine having children and, and having to juggle that even more so well with being at home. And, and that's an interesting thing. And you mentioned uh, mental health and mental health challenges or how, or how, excuse me, hotlines. And as someone who likes to be a big advocate for mental health mm-hmm. awareness, and mental hygiene, it's been interesting. I've been thinking about the pros and the cons that this moment in time actually affords. I think because we have so much more remote flexibility for folks who can work from home, like that's actually often given as an accommodation in, we'll say, white collar corporate settings for folks with mental health um, diagnoses or or disabilities. So in some way, like this makes it more the norm and allows a lot of flexibility. So it's good. And at the same time, like if this isolation can could exacerbate diagnosed, you know, cases or exacerbate the number who maybe aren't diagnosed and need to. And I know in Australia, there's a big campaign that exists, I think year round called Are You Okay? Um, I, I, some of my colleagues, um, from the team have shared, and I think it's a great, and they're, they're really doubling down on it. And I would, I would encourage everyone to check on your strong friend, even, because you never know, you know, how this is impacting them. And I think it's, it's so important to think about how our peers, um, how everyone we work with, we just need to suspend Mm -hmm. judgment and stop and, and think about what's, 
like I, I might have a perception about what's going on in their world, but I don't really know and don't really know like how all the dimensions mm-hmm. of their identity play into this. Yeah, it's such so, a good point. It's I think been, with, you know, with all things D&I, it's, it's as much as possible, you know, it's tr- challenging as humans, but as much as possible where we can suspend our judgment and um, suspend our assumptions and just check in with people. I think that's a really good point you raise. Yeah. And so how do you think workplaces and society might become more or less inclusive as a result of COVID-19? It's a a good question. I think um, whilst there's a lot of research that shows that diversity and inclusion um, in the workplace is is good for the bottom line, in in my experience, it's often the first thing to go when budgets, um, when budgets are cash. So I think it'll be interesting to see if specific D&I programs are cash as as companies, you know, do have revenue issues during um, and financial issues during during COVID. I saw a really interesting article on LinkedIn yesterday that talked about um, if you if companies cut back their D&I as a result of um, financial issues during um, coronavirus, then they really didn't get it in the first place. So it referenced how, yeah, oh. how um, <laughs> I need you to send that my way after. There is a link, I'm sure, as part of the podcast. It, um, but what was really clever is it talked about, you know, the benefits of DNI have been proven in relation to increased innovation. So, you know, when you have d- cognitive diversity, when you have a whole range of different people and they feel safe to be themselves and bring them whole selves to work, you know, you can really increase your innovation. And that's where a lot of the benefits come from DNI is different ways of thinking and innovation. And so encouraging that during these times is really important because companies need to be innovative in their response to COVID. You know, they may need to pivot and think of um, innovative new ways of serving clients and so on. So to cut your DNI programs might be cutting off your nose to spite your face, I suppose, is, is a saying, you know, um, because you really need that innovative um, different points of view and cognitive diversity to help solve some of the issues that COVID have brought up. So that will be really fascinating to see who's genuinely committed and keeps going with these things and who needs to cut back for financial reasons. Yeah, that's that's really. I look yeah, forward to yeah. reading that because I hadn't even made that connection. Into um, and yeah, I, what else yeah, are you I thinking? Think, you know, sadly, I think we'll see an increase in um, racism. I, I hope that's not the case, but um, I'm I'm keeping an mm. eye on that. I think you know because of the pandemic, people are often really scared, um, and when we're scared, it doesn't always bring out the best in in us. You know, I know President Trump um, has called it the China virus at times, which, you know, perhaps is not helpful. I know the Australian Human Rights Commission, I'm trying to be <laughs> diplomatic, um, I know the Human Rights Commission in Australia has um, said that a third of the race complaints in the last few months have been directly related to COVID-19. And I know in New York, the the New York State Attorney General launched a hotline that allowed New Yorkers to report hate crimes, harassment, discrimination, and that was a direct response to reports of a rise in anti-Asian harassment due due to COVID-19. So I'm concerned that perhaps there will be... um, an increase in anti-Asian sentiment. I don't know if that's something you're seeing. I know, you know, we talked about the New York State Attorney General, but I'm not sure if that's something you're um, witnessing. Yeah, 
It totally mm-hmm. is. And it's interesting. I, I actually follow a lot of diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. accounts and, you know, HuffPost's mm-hmm. Black uh, and Black Lives Matter and, if you know, HuffPost Women, Forbes Women. And I've been seeing um, a lot of media encouraging like of uh, people my age, Asian millennials, like reminding their peers and their and their younger family members to reach out to their older family members and say like, when you leave the house, you need to be prepared. Like this may happen, and like call me anytime. That and that I just saw that for the first time yesterday, and that was eye opening. Like to to be able to do that. And and what I understand about the culture is like there's strong family ties and reverence um, for the elders. So that's a tough position like to be in. And I can't like the xenophobia is definitely something we need to guard against as much as possible. And I can't even imagine like being in that group at this moment, what that must be like. The other day on the news here and talking about how, you know, Asian Australians are scared too. They're just, you know, they're scared about getting coronavirus too. And so they're just as scared as, you know, us going through the same thing but then on top of that they've got the you know potentially the the um the racism on top of that so you know that's um a very difficult position as i say i can't imagine the other thing yeah the other thing i'm interested in is um we had had sorts of experts talking about you know the different approaches to to handling a pandemic and and one of them was you know herd immunity and that you know a certain percentage of the population need to have immunity and then um you know scientifically through herd immunity that um people may be able to go back to more um restrictions and less isolation mm. and one expert was talking about um letting young and that they didn't define what young was so young in inverted commas i don't age they would define <laughs> as young but le- allowing young in inverted commas people return to work first because perhaps from a f- physical point of view they may be less you know at risk uh, of serious health implications if they do get the virus and i wondered whether that would potentially um, reinforce any conscious or unconscious age bias. You know, I know there's a lot of talk about um, potential age discrimination in in the workplace and um, particularly in in terms of recruitment. And I was concerned that if that approach was taken in some communities in terms of allowing younger people back to work first, whether they would be seen as stronger or more productive or work um, workers and whether that would, as I said, reinforce, you know, potential conscious and unconscious age bias. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Kayla. No, I, I definitely think that mm. could be the case. And and you already see, at least in the US, our population pyramid, we've got mm. all the boomers are the ones who are in that older pool right now. And there's definitely more cases of that. So I'm sure something would come and it's it's interesting. And Something a little different I've been thinking about um, that might result. So the good thing, of course, hopefully more organizations will be adaptive and take on flex and remote work in working from home, even post this. At the same time, um, I've just heard from friends um, and even about uh, we did a, a webinar um one of our australia colleagues ran it for different audiences and one of the poll questions was what's the hardest thing about working from home and the top ranking one 
uh, was the lack of boundaries between home and work life. And I've heard instances where definitely not in our organization, um, but where uh, senior managers and other organizations have said, oh, well, you don't have anything to do anymore at night or weekends. So of course you can keep working. And I, I hope that a, that stops now. And I definitely hope that doesn't continue. Um, if we allow for that. So that's something I'm thinking. And I, you mentioned really interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you Sorry, mentioned- we get so excited with D and I, we both want to talk. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, you, no, you, go, you go, please. Um, and you know, it comes back a bit to that mental health um, piece that we met, talked about before as well in terms of, um, you know, therefore making it challenging, as, you know, for everybody and especially those who are prone to mental health issues. You know, if you're expected to work 24-7 and you can't get out and get, uh, you know, exercise or fresh air, which are so important um, for everybody's mental oh. health. So I think, you know, that's a really interesting point you raise. I hadn't thought of that, but it's so true in terms of the the boundaries between work and home and, and just being expected to continue to work um, and not do anything else. But I'm interested also what you were going to say. Well, and I was going to say on the flip side of that, one of my hopes, and I think you alluded to this, was that since um, typically all partners are at home now, there hopefully will be a more balanced distribution of what I call and what experts call emotional labor that often is carried by one partner over the other, uh, typically a woman in a male-female relationship. So I'm hoping that uh, folks who aren't normally bearing the burden of organizing everything for children or the household or logistics um, will recognize all that needs to be done and handled in someone's brain and the, that will be balanced, more distributed so that you know, the person, the you know, typically a woman uh, in many societies is doing maybe 1.5 mm-hmm. jobs instead mm-hmm. of two jobs um, is one of my yeah, hopes. Visibility uh, of that absolutely. Increased visibility of the mental load and, and, and the household chores. Absolutely. I, I hope that is a positive that comes out of all of this. Yeah. Well, let's actually switch gears a little bit, if that's okay, and and stop talking about Corona, Um, since we have all had enough, I'm sure. Um, But you know that Adaptivate, our organization, focuses on helping organizations deliver value through Agile and other new ways of working. And I know you have some experience working in Agile business environments. So I'm curious, since you're an expert in both D and I and Agile, um, how do you think Agile ways of working actually lead to more inclusion? Um, so, look, I think um, whilst I have, it's very kind of you, I don't know if I'd consider myself an expert in Agile, but um, <laughs> I do, but I certainly have worked in, in Agile workplaces um, and I love the work that Adaptivate does in that space as well. You know, I think we're quite well aligned in terms of the philosophy around Agile and because um, there's so many different, you know, ways of of, of adopting that I suppose but um so I think agile teams tend to be to value you know in my experience anyway tend to value the individual and the interactions so I think you know that really supports um inclusion and I think agile teams tend to value collaboration and and cross-functional teams and I think that's really important as well so you know it might be worthwhile now I might just um 
for the, some listeners will know this and others may not. So it might be worth just distinguishing, you know, when I talk about DNI or diversity and inclusion, you know, I know you and I both love a quote by Werner Myers, which is around, you know, diversity is around being asked to the bowl and, and inclusion is being, you know, asked to dance. And I think that's an important distinction mm. because, you know, if you've got good unbiased or as unbiased as possible recruitment and selection processes, you should have a whole range of people that come and work for you um, of different um, identity factors. But the important thing and where you get the business benefits is where they feel included, they feel psychologically safe, they feel comfortable to bring their unique viewpoint and therefore you can get the cognitive diversity that I mentioned earlier and, and the different ways of looking at things. So I think Agile can be a really good way of driving inclusion and as we know that's the most important thing from a business benefit point of view when you're looking at DNI. So I think things like a well-run um, stand-up, for example, you know, where each yeah. member can talk about their work regardless of how senior they are and they don't have to be the loudest person in the room, that can really drive that inclusion and we know that inclusion is, is so important um, in terms of, as I said, the business benefits from D&I. So, you know, a really well-run stand-up, as I said, can and can really drive inclusion um, and also you know in my experience a well-run stand-up can also anybody can help when removing a blockage so it's not just your traditional go the leadership team go away and try and solve a problem um, for the team it's the whole team and anyone at any level and any um, any level of experience and seniority can can assist with with removing a blockage so I think that's something that agile can really bring to uh, the other thing I thought about was um, retros and how retros really encourage reflection. So, you know, we can reflect on how inclusive we've been, how inclusive the experience may have been for others. We can ask others mm. how included they feel. Um, you know, the research shows that when we're in the majority group, we often don't even realise um, with no misintent, we just don't realise that the minority group may feel a certain way. So, you know, being able to have those open conversations and reflect on have I been inclusive, how inclusive have I been, have I felt included? Can I check in with others? Um, I think, you know, the retros are a really good opportunity to to drive inclusion. And um, I know mm. you made a really good point when we spoke um, a couple of weeks ago um, around both of our thoughts in this space. Um, you had a really good point about the dot voting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah dot, when I first you know, came into the Agile world, I loved the mechanism of A, having everyone write their thoughts mm -hmm. um, so that you're having for a retrospective or, or story mapping or brain, any brainstorming session, because then A, everyone's heard. And then the dot voting is very democratic and it's a liberating structure and that, you know, everyone say is equal uh, when you go and vote on what ideas you want to talk about. And to me, that, uh, you know, it doesn't privilege uh, sort of, like you said, the highest paid person or the loudest person in the room. And I know some other things that I, I think are really great that allow it, Agile to be really inclusive are just having the set cadence of ceremonies or events mm -hmm. allows people who do, you know, have to balance maybe working kids, especially <laughs> in this environment to plan um, and focus on outcomes rather than like being on the clock at times when it's actually less conducive or maybe maybe from a cognitive lens maybe they work best maybe they're night owls and they get to do their best work at night and as long as you know they're at the ceremonies that's that's what matters is that focus on outcomes and 
I also really love that people get to leverage their strengths and by doing what they're passionate about and by choosing the type of tasks rather than being told to do different tasks. Um, and that goes beyond inclusion, but I think that's just the strength. And no, and now you make me want to go add mm-hmm. a, a bias question and an inclusion question to our mm-hmm. team's next retrospective. Yeah, good. That's good. a great idea. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's a really good point you raised that I hadn't uh, thought about so much before. But, you know, I know that when I've done unconscious bias training before, some of the leaders have reflected and said, I think, it, you know, in an unconscious bias sense, I've given the same people in the team the opportunities in terms of the better projects and the development projects and so on because I go to the same people mm. all the time. And as you said, you know, one of the good things that can come out of Agile from an inclusion point of view is not just picking the same people every time, not just the leader picking um, yeah, their favourites, even if it's subconsciously. Um, so, you know, I think that's a really good point you raise. It's really interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we sort of wrap us, begin to wrap up, um, I'm thinking about this notion actually of, uh, implicit biases. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of curious what advice you might have, mm-hmm. not final words of wisdom, but mm-hmm. I know you and I have spoken about, uh, the Harvard implicit yeah. bias yeah. test as a tool that we might suggest all listeners take. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and any other similar frameworks? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I love the Harvard Implicit Association. um, I suppose it's a test, so to speak. Um, You know, I know it's something you and I have done in the past and it's doing having this conversation has made me want to go back and revisit that and see where things are at. So, you know, it's interesting. The way our brains work is there's millions of pieces of data coming in at any one time and our brains can only process so much. So our brain then just puts things into um certain categories and assumptions to to cope with the amount of data that's coming in. And we know in these technological times that as technology increases, often there's more and more information coming. So it's, you know, unconscious bias is normal. It's natural. Everybody has it just because of the way our brains work. And it's not always bad. Sometimes the assumptions are fine. You know, we, we see something and we assume it's a pen. We don't have to pick it up and write with it. And, you know, our brain takes a shortcut and that's, that's okay. But sometimes the what shortcuts we take are not helpful and don't um, have the best decision making. So, you know, we see someone and we make an assumption based on the way they look, and that may not be correct in terms of um, inclusion in the workplace. And so it's really interesting to become more aware of what our unconscious biases are, because as I said, everybody has them, you know, um, yeah. you have them as well. And, and so Harvard have a free online test. It's called the Implicit Association Test, and it's it's really measuring unconscious bias. Um, and people can go online and Google that. And I, I highly recommend it. I quite enjoy doing it, actually. And, I, I you know, the results, <laughs> you know, um, and because it's a quite an unusual test, um, an unusual way of doing things. But, um, uh, yeah, I really enjoy it, as I said, but it's really useful to, to become more aware of our unconscious biases because we all have them. And, and by becoming more aware of them, we can then question, is that a useful bias that I have? And is that helping me make the best decision that I can make for myself and for the business? So I'd, I'd recommend that um, listeners go online if they haven't already and Google Harvard Implicit, Implicit Association and have a look at those um, those tests. Mm-hmm. 
And I know I've taken them and I, I keep mm. meaning to go back and it'd be yeah. interesting even to look at and take maybe there's, I think there's 30 or some yeah. uh, different based on different dimensions of identity. So you could see, do you have a natural inclination or bias, you know, for males versus females? So now I, after this conversation, I want to go take the one about Asian Americans or Asian population and see, like, have I actually now have some implicit, what's my implicit thinking? And then think about what action I can take as an individual and as a leader and a role model uh, to guard against destructive, potentially biased, um, unintentional behaviors that might make a less inclusive environment. That's That's got me thinking. Yeah. Do the same, and, and hopefully some of our listeners. And ha- have you ever heard of? We haven't talked, spoken about this yet. Have mm-hmm. you ever heard of something called the privilege walk or the identity mm-hmm. walk? I have. Yes, um, I was talking about that last week. Actually, there's a really good um, ah. clip on that. Absolutely, and and we often do that in our unconscious bias sessions, and it's it's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's such a, a great. Um, so maybe you do you want to describe it for listeners for those who haven't heard of it before because I think it is I love yeah. it yeah it's a great one absolutely um I first learned about it when I was um, a teacher at a, mm-hmm. a national nonprofit and actually then I was training other teachers in diversity and inclusion and thinking along uh, working across lines of difference. And basically it's an exercise where everyone lines up in a horizontal line. And then a facilitator reads 30 some odd statements and you take steps forward or back based on whether you've lived to them in your life. And I know some of the statements that were most eye opening for me, especially as a white woman, even though I had lived in diverse communities were things like, you know, I can go to the store and find band-aids in my skin color. Mm-hmm. Um, or I see people that look like me on TV mm-hmm. or I have dolls that look like me, or mm-hmm. I grew up, um, you know, with books in my house or not, or like your example about the dial up, that's an example that might show up, um, in various contexts. I'm sure, you know, thinking about the Aboriginal populations, um, in Australia, like there's probably some questions that would align with that. I would imagine in Australia, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so, it's just—it's really interesting to see then people's reaction of where they land up. And I know when I did it for the first time, seeing where I was and seeing where other people was, you know, um, you know, you, you, I had a feeling of guilt. Others had feelings of shame, and you know, none of us should have had though necessarily needed to yeah. have feelings. But it's really, really interesting. And one that really stood out for me when I did the privilege walk um, was as a participant was around, you know, I can go in public and show romantic, romantic um, feelings if I'd like to, you know, and oh, for yeah. some people who identify as LGBTIQ plus, you know, that hasn't always been the case. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was a real eye opener for me that I just took for granted and hadn't even thought about that. If I wanted to hold hands with someone, a partner, I could in the street and not feel um, fear or shame or scared or whatever the particular feelings mm. were. So, but yeah, the privilege walk is a great exercise. And as I said, there's a, a really good YouTube clip that we might be able to um, link for people to see who haven't um, experienced it or seen much about it. To yeah. see. I think that's a, it's, it's a great one. Yeah. And something else I've been thinking since you and I last spoke is just something uh, more action those who are interested can take is thinking about being a good ally. And I try to be a good ally to different groups by learning 
And so that I'm, I'm not placing the burden on people in minority groups to educate my peers or, or, or people who might be in a majority group. Rather, I'm trying to take some of that burden off the shoulders by being educated or sharing resources like the ones you and I are speaking now so that we're not always, you know, asking someone uh, to carry an even bigger burden by teaching us about a culture or a, a subgroup. So yeah. that's something I'm thinking yeah, that allyship. That's right, because some yeah. people have that burden, and equally others, you know, may want to have a voice and may want to talk about these things. But you know, a lot of a lot of totally. people, yeah. But also, as you say, a lot of people don't want to have to explain it, and and do really appreciate if people take the time to understand and educate themselves. So I think that's a really good point. And as you say, totally. you know, all the, there's so many great resources out there, you know, as you say, being a member of all of those groups, you know, whether it's in LinkedIn or <clears throat> Half post or any of those, you know, there's so many different groups where we can get more education because, you know, I kind of we laughed about the agile expert, but even the DNI expert, you know, to me, it's a lot. And we talked about this at the beginning of our conversation. It's a lifelong journey. It's not something where you go, right? I'm an expert. I know this now. You know, there's always so much more to learn. And everyone, you know, we talked about our unique journeys at the beginning, and everybody has their own unique journey and learning about their journey and how that's informed their um, particular situation. And as you say, the different factors of, of identity. So yeah, I think it's great to that um, ongoing education is really important. Totally. Well, and that leads us to our last question and a half. Um, so do you have any final words of wisdom to share with individuals on their and organizations on their journey to be inclusive? I think it's what we've just been talking about. I think it's a great segue. I think it's just that ongoing knowledge, you know, and trying to educate ourselves continually. So for me, the things I try and remember and my, you know, potential words of wisdoms would be three key things. Mm. Knowledge commitment and courage, you know, building our knowledge, continually learning, as you say, being an ally and educating ourselves. As we know, you know, in the majority, we often don't understand how the minority feels. So in some instances, we might be in a minority group, but in others, we may be in a majority. So building our knowledge, um, having that commitment to continually support others and, and, and building our knowledge, and then having the courage, you know, sometimes it can be challenging. D&I can be fraught, you know, we can be scared of saying the wrong thing. And and I think as long as it's said with respect, you know, I think it's important that we have the courage to to speak up for ourselves and for others and for minority groups and have the courage to continue to learn and, and the commitment to to try and drive a more inclusive workplace and a more inclusive society. So, yeah, knowledge, commitment and courage for me. Definitely, definitely. Um, so, well, it has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you and to chat <laughs> and learn um, <laughs> from you. And one more final question we like to ask all of our guests. Um, yes. You have a podcast recommendation for our listeners. Oh, yes. I love podcasts. Um, for me, one of the ones that I often listen to and really enjoy is Potential Psychology. So Potential hmm. Psychology is a podcast um, run by a psychologist called Ellen Jackson. Uh, and it was a, actually a finalist in the 2019 Australian Podcast Awards. And Ellen, as I said, is a, is a psychologist. She's actually, I actually studied with her at university for our undergraduates. And, um, and she really focuses on using science to, to help 
people thrive and flourish. So it's a really enjoyable podcast. She interviews a lot of experts. Um, and it's, yeah, really interesting in terms of how we can use science, the science of positive psychology to, to thrive and flourish. So if you haven't listened to that, you might enjoy that one. Mm, I might. Well, awesome. Excellent. Thank you so, so very much. Mil gracias, Veronica. And thank you listeners of The Backlog for tuning in. And Veronica, I wish you a wonderful weekend and everyone else stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Ciao. (laughs) 